all of you? Well, most of you. Sorry about that. I don't want to not be honest with you all. I'm just joking. It's good to see you all. Um, so you heard we had a Saturday night service last night, first preview. A little over 100 folks in the room, and that's like real numbers. That's not even preacher numbers. That's actually what it was, and we're not inflating those anyway. Um, if you're joining us online right now, like listening to us online, there's like 4,000 people in the room. You're missing out. But, um, but anyway, about 100 people. Uh, so it makes sense we kind of think through this. Got one more of those this upcoming Saturday, September 28th. And then we will officially kick off having Saturday night services uh, the first Saturday in October from this point forward. Um, we know for sure we're going to do it for the entire school year. So this is part of the plan. We think we'll keep doing it longer than that. But for the next nine months, we know this is just the plan Saturday nights. And so it gives you another option. Uh, I'll tell you a little bit at the end on how you can invite people to those things. But um. It makes sense uh, right here, just for a few minutes as we kind of are uh, sitting here, that we would remind you of why we're doing the Saturday night thing, because, you know, you're like, ah, oh, there's, uh, we got two services on Sunday, can't people just go to those? And so it makes sense that I uh, just would kind of remind you, there's kind of um, two guiding reasons that we've uh, kind of decided as a staff and elders uh, to, to launch a Saturday night service. Uh, three, if you want to consider space, this... Um, and got some space issues that we're trying to sort through, and so another service would help that. But the, the kind of two guiding ones are, one of them has to do with a Sabbath. We talked about that a little bit a couple of weeks ago. And by Sabbath, I mean a day of rest, like a, like a le- legitimate 24 hours where you pause and um, uh, look at us and look at our schedules. As, as your pastor, really candidly, pretty concerned at the, the, the pace at which we go, um, and the the current of our culture that just kind of sweeps us up. And um, so in many ways, I think it's really important that we take a moment and pause. And uh, God actually models this when he uh, created everything. And it said on the seventh day, God rested, not because he needed to. I mean, he, he can infinitely supply everything he needs, right? So he always has had everything he's ever needed, all the energy. It's not like he needs to replenish himself. He does it to, to model that this is pretty important. And uh, Jesus uh, reminds us about the Sabbath, and he says the Sabbath— uh, uh, was, was, uh, wasn't the Sabbath was, was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. In other words, there's something about that pause that's pretty important. And um, as we kind of survey and talk to people and kind of work through the busyness of our schedules, um, Sundays are complicated for us. Uh, many of you, for, for example, if you have daughters who play soccer, uh, soccer leagues for girls around here, a lot of them are on Sunday mornings. So boy soccer Saturday, girls is on Sunday. So if you've got a boy, it doesn't really mess with your church stuff. But if you have a girl, what do you do? You tell them that she can't play soccer because it's on Sunday. You know, you got some of those things. And many people work on Sundays and people work on like kind of swing shifts. So one way we thought, we'd, let's create another option uh, so that we can give more people the opportunity uh, to find a time to worship and then also rest and um, what I'd suggest for, for many folks, particularly Saturday Night Service helps this, is perhaps maybe you do the, the, the traditional Jewish approach, the Sabbath, which starts at sunset on Friday night, and you just pause from Friday night to Saturday night, like just a real 24 hours, just to pause the last day of the week, and, and maybe you finish up kind of the, your Sabbath rest with a worship service, and you go, go to church on Saturday night and celebrate that, or you could even... Uh, start maybe a, a full Sunday Sabbath. You go to church on Saturday night, and then you can sleep in on Sunday morning, or maybe you want to get to the beach for a day, and so it just gives us another option, and so just trying to figure out, um, in light of just our world, how do we make sure we give you some options to kind of take care of your schedule, take care of your family, those things. No, but that is a factor, but not the factor. I would, I would kind of say that the number one reason that we started the Saturday night service, and this will kind of set us up for what we're going to talk about today, is, um, uh, because, and I've actually told you the stats wrong, I need to uh, apologize for that, I've been telling you, there are 80,000 people, like, there's 100,000 people within 10 miles of this church, right, and 80,000, according to statistics, about, only about 20% of um, America, 20% of our region is engaged with the gospel, connected to a church, really believes this stuff, right, that those statistics probably are a little high, and so that assumption is, okay, if there's 100,000 people within 10 miles, that means 80,000 of them, 80,000, your neighbors, my neighbors, our co-workers, you know, your friends, family, all that stuff, like, they, they have no idea there's a God who loves them, right? I mean, that's a pretty significant issue, but the numbers aren't correct, so I went back and was re- looking at the maps and looking at this, the data, and actually, Within seven miles of this church, right? Seven miles. Uh, there's 100,000 people now. Seven miles as a, at the end of uh, 2017, 100,000 people live within seven miles of, this, of, of, of Christian Life Center. If you extend it three more miles, that's now 10 miles. Um, 
It's actually 200,000 people. So literally three-mile radius in every direction, and it, it doubles the population. So what that means, within seven miles of here, um, there are 80,000 folks who don't have any idea that, that God loves them, right? And here's how, here, here's how, how Jesus says it. Um, when he engages, he, he connects with a really messy, broken human being like the rest of his name, Zacchaeus. We'll get to talk about him in, uh, in November. But he actually engages with Zacchaeus and invites him into his kingdom, his relationship with him. And then he says at the end of that, he says something really important. He goes, for the Son of Man, that, that's uh, Jesus talking about himself and pointing to his humanity, right? Like that he literally was God incarnate. So the Son of Man, the God of the universe came down on this earth, right? The Son of Man, this is what he said, came to seek and save that which was lost. So there is this guiding principle that, that Jesus has this mission that he's very clear about that he then equips and calls his church to participate in, and it's to seek and save that which is lost. And we talked about it a couple weeks ago, and that term lost is uh, maybe borderline offensive, right? Like, but one thing I just point out is uh, uh, when you talk about lost things, uh, it, it points to something of value. You don't say you lose your trash, right? You lose your keys, you lose your kids in, in the grocery store, right? And those are things that matter to you, that you care about. And if you lose it, uh, you're going to spend time, pause, and make sure you find it, right? And so when Jesus uses the term lost, it, it's indicative of um, a value inherently that he's put on people. So you got that. Um, but when we talk about lost, here's what all we're saying. And we get this, I think, hopefully. It just means um, we either aren't reading the map right or we're using the wrong map, or we're not using the map at all, right? So loss literally means that you just uh, are operating without the right directions, right? Or without the right map. And um, what's interesting about that, when you think about the term lost, um, it's really hard for us, and for women especially, not men, um, to admit that we're lost, right? Right, right. So, I mean, guys are pretty quick to go, I'll go, I'll go into the convenience store and acknowledge that I don't know where I'm going and ask for directions, right? You know, we're good at that. But women, on the other hand, like, it's really hard, right? And I'm joking, but it's hard for us to admit that we're lost. And so, um, what I would argue for our culture, our, our community, uh, and I'm talking about right here, Southern Chester County, and then I would also talk about America, uh, North America, all Western society, probably the whole world, I'd say the majority of us operate in a lost mentality, and I would argue it's because we are operating with the wrong map, right? And so we shared a couple weeks ago, just want to remind you that here's what I would say that the guiding map or the place that all of us are going, like if there's a map for Americans, if there's a map for us, right, um, the map has a, a, an actual goal, like where there's something that we're all trying to operate in, it's our culture, what we're trying to do, and what m most of us would say, and this is general, this may not be specific to you, but a generalized form, this is how it kind of works, that the map for us, what all of us are going after, in some way or another, is this, success, right? Success, and we like that term, we use that term, we want our kids to be successful, we want uh, them to be goal-oriented, and we want them to have goals and achieve those goals, and so for most of us, and I'm not Christian, non-Christian, doesn't really matter, for most of us, the number one objective we have is to be successful, so let me uh, put some uh, verbs on that, right? By successful, I mean uh, we want to achieve something. So it's achieving or maybe obtaining. One more just for fun. Acquiring. I looked this up on Google to make sure I knew how to spell it. There it is. Achieving, obtaining, or acquiring, right? So when we think about how our world works and how most people in it, including us, right, we operate, we are all focused on achieving the goals, obtaining the things, acquiring the resources, whatever that is, right? So when we look at our world, and we'd have to define it pretty quickly and go, okay, what map are we following? The map of our life is saying we should be successful, which means we have these goals we got to achieve, a certain amount of money in the bank, right? Uh, a certain weight on the scale, um, certain size house, certain things in the house, uh, certain uh, age by which you should be married, certain age by which you should have kids, a certain age by which the kids should leave your house, right? Got all those different things, and those are all in this kind of category. We all kind of live in this category where we just go, we want to be successful, and most of us would not even define success as having too much stuff, lots and lots of stuff. You know, we would just say this. We'd go, uh, we just want to be successful enough to be comfortable, right? In other words, we just want to make sure we have enough every day. In other words, we want to say, we just don't want to depend on anyone or anybody for anything. We want to just kind of depend on ourselves, right? And so that's kind of the, the guiding self 
preservation model in America, in our world, is just going to be successful. Now, here's the problem with that. Because you can pause for a second. I think, I think we all can agree here that when we look at our world, we go, yeah, that's probably the, the guiding factor driving us, right? But we'd also look at our world and go, but there's also something wrong here. Not about this. We haven't, we haven't, got, we haven't thought that far in advance. But we would go, you know, people seem really stressed and mean. And I can't, you, you say it, we say it, I can't even watch the news. You know, I was talking to Julie about it the other day, like, uh, or like last night uh, before the Georgia game, there was like the local CBS news, and I was telling her, I couldn't tell you the last time like I turned on the news. But it was just a, a, like a standard in my house growing up. The news was always on, on you know, it's just part of life. And we go, we kind of want to isolate ourselves from this news that's all out there, right? And because we understand there's lots of broken stuff. And so we have a map, but if we were to pause long enough, we'd go, but that map really isn't making life better for us, right? There's still something off. And here, here, here's why. Let me, let me show you. Because one of two things happens in this map, right? Either you, you succeed at all these things, right? You get married at the time you wanted to. You get the job you want. You get the amount of money you need in the bank. And here's what's crazy when all those things happen. It doesn't make you any happier. You actually, you turn over all the rocks, you get all the stuff, and you still have the same issues, you still have this, this complication. You thought for sure when you achieved, attained, acquired that that would make everything better. You looked at yourself as an 18-year-old and go, when I get there at 40, that's going to be good. And guess what? Now we're 55 or 60 and we're looking back and going, well, 40 didn't do it for us. Even though I set all my goals and all the things. So one of the sides is we actually acquire and get all the things we set out for, right? A lot of us are good at that. We actually are really good in this community, in this area. We're really good at getting the, the degrees, getting the job we want, making the money we want, all those things. And on the back end, guess what? It hasn't actually met the needs that we wanted to. It leaves us in this place of emptiness, right? Or, on the other side, you don't achieve what you wanted to. You thought you'd be married by 25, and you're now 40, and you're still single. You thought you'd have kids at 28, and you know, you're in your 50s, and didn't have kids, right? You thought for sure that you would be married the rest of your life to your high school sweetheart. Now you're 50 and a widow, right? Whatever those things are, you have all these different things where you're imagining and you're going, I want to achieve, I want to acquire, and I want to do, and it didn't work out for you. So on one end, it does work out, and it didn't fulfill everything you needed to, leaves you empty. Or the other side of it is you don't actually get to do the things. You didn't make the goals, and it just tells you in your mind, tells you in your heart that you're not that good, and it leaves you in a place of being defeated. So here's the really interesting thing. You look out across our world, and you go, yeah, there's a lot of folks who are empty, and there's a lot of folks who are defeated, and here's how we can tell. Because um, the number one coping mechanism for this model, which we all live in, so n- no judgment on anybody, right? The number one coping mechanism for this is escape. It's escape, right? So maybe you escape to a bottle, maybe you escape to a pill, maybe you escape to a computer, maybe you escape to someone you shouldn't. I don't, I don't know what it is, but the, our, our goal here, maybe we just escape to lots of TV, whatever it is. We are so overwhelmed and going, this didn't work out the way you wanted to, so we just live in this place of just escape. No, this isn't a, we're not talking about non-Christians, we're talking about this is just the culture that we live in, the, regardless of where you are. So, it's going, if that's the case, and Jesus came to say, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, then perhaps he's going, there must be a better map. Now, here's the problem with how we view Jesus and God and all these things. Because when we bring God and Jesus into our worldview of success, we then start seeing God as the one who helps us achieve, obtain, and acquire. Dear God, would you fix my marriage? Make it better. Dear God, would you give me that job? Dear God, would you give me good health? Dear God, would you, would you, would you, right? And so that's still this model, the success-driven model. And we're just asking God to kind of be our, you know, our genie in a bottle to help us on our own model, right? And so the problem with that is if you have something that you hold up as higher than God, right? Maybe you hold up your reputation as higher than God. Or maybe you hold up your bank account and the amount of money in there as higher than God, right? Or maybe you even hold your marriage or your family as more valuable to you than God. So if that's the case, why in the world, if you're going to go, God, I am going to worship this thing, my career, my fame, my money, over you, and then all your prayers are going, God, would you give me more of that? Would you fix all these things? Would you give me the new job so I can find more value in that job? And so why in the world would a God offer to answer those prayers in that way when all that would really be happening, for those of us Christians, right? Um, but all that would be happening is it would give you one more thing to focus on and not focus on God. So what we're going to talk about today is what happens 
and all this land right here. And what we're going to call all these things, it's going to be fun, we're going to call them idols. And we're going to figure out what idols we have in our life. This is for the Christians, right? And even if you're not a Christian, it's going to be pretty interesting. You're, oh, yeah, I'd do some of that. And boy, it's left me empty or defeated. And so we're going to figure out all those idols and kind of tackle them and go, okay, maybe there is a better map and we're going to sort through it. And the really gracious thing about God is he doesn't always beat us up in all this. But what he does is he leverages these things in our life. And he gives us, in the middle of all that, remember one of the hardest parts about being lost is admitting you're lost, right? He gives us some awareness. And the way by which he's going to give some awareness, really, really beautiful. Um, God does some really neat things. We see it in Genesis. Uh, that was the first, uh, first book of the Bible. Now we're seeing Exodus where God shows up and he makes a promise. He makes it to a guy named Abraham. He makes it to all of his ancestors, makes it to uh, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, but he makes this promise that one day everything's going to be resolved. One day everything's going to be perfect. In fact, if you read the end of the Bible in Revelation, it says there will be a day that there will be no more tears and no more pain and no more sorrow. And he's going, that's coming. That's coming. All this will be made whole. All this will be made new. All will be right in the world. And God makes these promises, right? But remember, in the success-driven world, we get so focused on what God can do for us and not on God himself. And so what happens, there's this promise and one day there's going to be this massive payoff and all sorts of things. Uh, in our own lives, in our own world, right, God actually says that the kingdom of heaven is going to come back to this earth. Like, all things will be made right. But long between this promise and this payoff is this big, murky area. And it's in this area here where we get to have so much awareness about what's going on in our life, right? And so what we have here, what we're going to read through is um, we've been kind of studying this really neat case study in the Bible, Exodus. It's basically God's chosen people, and they're called the Israelites. And so God, um, uh, one of the things that he does in this is he always does what he says he's going to do, so he always fulfills his promises. And one of the things that he told the Israelites real early on, he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to free you from captivity. And so when the book of Genesis, which tells us of the origin of uh, man, how broken we are, how much we need a savior, all those different things. Uh, the book of Genesis kind of ends with God's chosen people, this case study of people that um, help us understand who we are and how much God loves us, this case study. And these people in life, uh, ends with them kind of flourishing in a really good world. And then at the very end of it, you see this kind of uh, transition from Genesis to Exodus. And there's about this 400-year time period where all these Israelites, God's people, kind of representing in a case study how God works with people, um, they have found themselves enslaved in a different, different land. So they're now in Egypt, and they're in slavery, and they're crying out to God, 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 would you f please free us, right? Would you achieve this goal for us? One of the goals we have in life is to be free, right? And so they, uh, they are crying out to God, and God says, I will free you. And then he even makes another promise. He says, and I will take you to your own land, a land that I've promised, promised land, and it's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey, and they get excited about that and so through some crazy supernatural circumstances that we don't have time to cover, God frees his people out of slavery, and they cross over out of Egypt into this new land they're supposed to go to. It should have taken about 11 days to get there, but um, once they get out of the land, they get kind of aimless. They start grumbling and complaining, and so God is going to leverage this time to give them some awareness, right? And so what should have been an 11-day journey, as we find out, will be a 40-year journey. We're not going to cover all that today, but where we find these Israelites is 60 days in. They are nomadic. They're like setting up tents every night. God's providing them with food and water. So God's still being gracious. And they're saying, God, God, you made a promise to us. We're ready for the payoff. And right now they're in this very frustrating part of it, right? And so finally, God uses uh, uh, their leader, Moses. And he says, hey, Moses, uh, you think your, your guys are ready to actually get the right map? You think your guys are ready to actually get the right directions? And Moses like, I think so. And so what happens is in Exodus chapter 19, we're covering 19 through 32 today, long, long period. God says to Moses, I'm going to give you the right map so we can, now we can lead these folks. It's not about success. It's not about those things. I'm going to give you the right map to follow. Now, that word that we use for that map is the law. It's the, it's the directions that God gives. And so Moses says to the people, finally, guys, you're going to get the right directions. We're going to hear from God. Finally, we've been waiting to hear from God. It's been 60 days. We haven't heard from him yet, but he's going to speak to us, and he's going to write everything down, and he's going to give us very clear instructions and directions on what to do. But the, the caveat, the, the thing that has to happen here is you have to obey what God does. Do you guys, are you guys interested in living your own life, or you want to follow and obey God? And they go, 
Exodus 19, verse 8, they go, we will obey everything, every single time. We'll do it all right. In their arrogance, they go, we'll do it all right, okay? So uh, they make this big uh, proclamation, and then Moses goes up to a mountain, Mount Sinai, and spends time with God. Now, what we know is that the, uh, through the scriptures that Moses spends 40 days up there. So from Exodus 19 to Exodus 31 are, are all the rules and all the stuff that Moses gets from God. So he's going up there, they're spending some time, and he's getting all this information from God. It literally says that God gives them tablets that he actually wrote on. This is crazy, right? And then Moses is going to take all this stuff back down and deliver it to the people. They've been waiting for the map. They've been going, we just want to follow God. We want to do all those things. And so uh, Exodus 19 through 31 is all the, all the stuff that God shares about directions. Now, if you read it, it gets confusing because you think it happens immediately. But Exodus 19 through 30 is all the stuff that Moses is eventually going to share, or 31. But we don't, they don't see it yet. So where we find them back with the Israelites is in uh, chapter 32. So pretty confusing to work through. So Exodus 19 through 31 is all these rules. Now, because we're talking about the rules, it makes sense to explain to you a little bit more about those before we get to Exodus 32. So uh, we can call them rules. We can call them revelation. We can call them laws. Uh, you're familiar with this, even if you're uh, not interested in Christianity, not interested in any of that kind of stuff. Because uh, uh, some of these, one of the big parts of the rules is the Ten Commandments, right? So this is where we get those Ten Commandments, the ones that people fight about, whether or not they should be in courthouses, whatever, all that kind of stuff, right? And uh, basically those, those big ten guiding rules are how a lot of uh, justice and judgment and constitutional stuff is all kind of uh, sit, uh, you know, s- uh, centered on this is t- 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 pretty significant and um, basically Jesus in the, in, in the New Testament sums up uh, all the law including those Ten Commandments and he says and you can kind of you know, divide them up first half, second half, there's some interesting things when you look at them um, that he says um, the, all of it can be defined by this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength, love your neighbor as yourself so there, there's some really good stuff here but one of the interesting things about the Ten Commandments that gets dangerous for us is when those become religion like when now all of a sudden it's not about Jesus, it's not about God, it's about obeying the rules. And so um, I grew up in a fundamental world where it was all about following the Ten Commandments, right? That's how I believed wholeheartedly that God was happy with me if I did all those things. But when I didn't do all those things, I walked in a ton of shame because I understood that if God gave those to us, it had to be first and foremost because God wanted me to obey all this stuff. The problem is, that's not why he gives us the law. So, a um, couple of uh, kind of analogies or metaphors I think we can use to help you understand it. So, you get to see this term, the Ten Commandments. It's what your kiddos are learning about right now in Kid Zone. And then we're going to get back to Exodus 32. Here's two different analogies I think they'll be helpful. One of them um, is that kind of all of these laws, hundreds of them, plus the Ten Commandments, they're not actually, the number one objective isn't to get you to obey them. In fact, this is a shocker. You can't obey them. You can't. You, you cannot do it well. So the, the number one uh, purpose of the Ten Commandments, I, I, would, I would say, it would be this. It's a reagent. Um, the way I usually describe it, if you've seen the first National Treasure movie, man, Nicolas Cage, he's such a good actor. Um, so the first National Treasure movie, um, one of the things that happens in it, they're trying to find, you know, this big treasure. And um, what they discover is there's a map supposedly on the back of the, uh, the Constitution, right? A Declaration of Independence. Thank you. There you go. That's right. And so they, uh, they go and they steal it. They bring it there. And uh, so uh, there's a scene where they, they're at their, uh, Nicholas Cage's dad's house. And they're going, they have the, this document. And it's laying out. And it's uh, completely empty on the back. Right? And they're like, no, there's supposed to be a map there. But then they take some lemon juice and a hair dryer. They apply it to the back of the map. And what was hidden now comes up, right? It was always there. They didn't make anything. They just, it just, they used the lemon juice, they used the uh, hair dryer to reveal what was hidden, right? So the whole purpose of the reagent, the lemon juice, was to reveal what was always there, right? So uh, in that light, when you take these laws and you place them over you, What's happening is it's actually bringing out something that was already in you. And it's not good stuff. So remember, one of the big goals that God offers us is this awareness. So part of the, the, the reason for the laws is when, it, when it's placed over your heart, when you try to follow them, what actually happens is you get some awareness that you're not as good as you want to think you are. Or you're not as good as you pretend to be. And if it's all up to you to reconcile yourself with God, you're in really big trouble, right? So here would be the second one. like this one even better. Um, uh, the Ten Commandments are the law. You can look at like an MRI machine, right? Um, I have all sorts of stuff going on with my leg right now, lower back, all the leg. So I've had several MRIs. Uh, I've been using uh, pen medicine for them. And I, many of you folks that you work there and I get to see you there. I just, this is confession time and we'll get back to the sermon. Um, 
I had an MRI done on my leg, and I had you go in, and they give you hospital pants, right? So you put them on, and then you lay in there, and they let you listen to music or whatever, and then they put on, you know, some headphones, and, you know, there's loud noise, and you, magnets, you know, shooting your body, all, whatever it is, right? Aliens. I have no idea what's going on there. But, um, and then, uh, then you leave. Well, I put on the hospital pants, and then when I left, I got ready, and I just put my other pants on top of my hospital pants. So apparently you're supposed to give those back. And I smuggled hospital pants out of University of Penn. I'm sorry, Dr. Rooney. I am. So uh, I have them at house. I haven't used them. I'm not sure what to do. If somebody can tell me what to do with those, I'll be happy to dra- I drop them. Anyway, so, so um, when I went to get the MRI, here's what happened. They laid me in there, and then they kind of scanned my whole body. And then I got the results, right? So understand this. Nothing about the MRI fixed me, right? In fact, when I got the results, it actually led me to a little bit of um, feeling defeated, right? I didn't lay in the MRI and come out and go, wow, I feel so much better now. I actually felt worse because I realized there's a lot of stuff going on in my body that has to be fixed. Nothing about the MRI fixes me. All it does is give me awareness about what needs to be fixed. And then I have to go, hmm, I probably should go talk to a specialist, right? The MRI convinces me there is something wrong with me that I can't fix. And therefore, I need to go find a specialist who can help me get better. So when you think about it that way, when you see the Ten Commandments, when you see these laws, it's like an MRI. It doesn't fix you. When, when, it, when you lay yourself inside those rules, what it does to you is it reveals to you how hard it is to actually obey those things and how corrupt we all are. And then what it should lead you to is a place of going, hmm, I probably should see a specialist. Now, the really neat thing is throughout the Old Testament, there's this declaration that there is a specialist who can heal our hearts, give us new hearts, and redeem us. And all in the Old Testament is pointing to this guy named the Messiah, the Christ. And in the New Testament, Jesus shows up and he says something like this, using the, repent for the kingdom of God is near. In other words, repent because you've been operating in the wrong way, but the specialist is now here and he can actually, he can redeem you. He can give you a new heart. So the whole idea of all these laws is actually to convince us that we need help. We need a Savior. And even when you look at the garden and the fruit hanging on the tree, it's the same thing. It was to convince Adam and Eve that they could not fix themselves. They were not God, and it was not their kingdom. So all these laws were all to kind of help people get some awareness. Now, what's messed up, God's trying to help them get some awareness. And why Moses is up there, the, 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 the Israelites get really stir-crazy. And I have no idea what that's like. I have no idea what it's like to be antsy and stir-crazy. So it's hard for me to kind of imagine that, but I'm going to try to as we read these scriptures. And so Moses is gone 40 days, and so their leader's gone, and you know, the cat's away, the mice play. So this is what's about to happen in Exodus chapter 32. So long setup to get to Exodus chapter 32, verse 1. Don't worry, we're only reading like 57 verses today, so we got plenty of time. This would be a time to take a deep breath. Here goes, 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. You see this? So all of a sudden, they're like, God, we'll obey you always. We'll do everything. You're the greatest God in the world. Moses is gone a week, and they're going, we got to do something, guys. we got to do something. So they go to Aaron. That's... Um, Moses' brother. So if Moses is like the, the general, Aaron is considered the priest. So Mo, and Moses is the head of, uh, he's a CEO, and Aaron's the head of human resources, right? So it's that kind of deal. So they go to Aaron with their complaints, their grievances, right? So they're going, we got to do something. Moses has abandoned us. Aaron answered them. He has a plan. Take off the gold earrings that your wife, your sons, and your daughters are wearing. Pull out your grills around your teeth and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings, and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast, uh, cast in the shape of a calf. Okay, this is important. This is like the, this isn't the back of your leg, right? This is like a baby cow. I don't know if you were confused, because you're like, I've seen the Christmas story. I know exactly what that lamp looks like, right? It's not that calf. It's a baby cow, right? So, uh, cast it in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. So, Aaron makes this. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Now, this is crazy talk. Uh, 60 days earlier, they, they literally, the, the entire uh, Red Sea was opened up for them. They walked across on dry land, and then an enti- their entire enemy gets washed up and consumed. Before that, there were 10 crazy supernatural events that God got all the credit for. 60 days into this, God has been feeding them every day and giving them water every day. 60 days into this now, they're 
pastor goes on vacation, and they have now given credit to a golden cow for all the supernatural events. God freed them out of captivity, and now a gold cow gets the credit. Right? And you go, that is so messed up. And it'd be really easy for us to go, yeah, see, that, they're, they're archaic. They're, not, they're primitive. They're not as evolved as we are. We would never do those things. Just would say, hold your judgment, because it's, we're going to get some more um, insight, I think. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. Right? So what, one of the indications here is these people, um, they got to put their attention and focus on something. This is how we're kind of wired, and by that I mean worship something. And this is what I'd argue, Christian, non-Christian, don't have a lot of time to camp here. We all worship. Like, we all worship. Maybe you worship uh, things you shouldn't, or maybe you worship uh, your sports team, or your car, or your house, or your family. But all of us have something that is so special to us that we put all of our focus on it. And when those things are taken from us, all that focus and attention and all the attention we offered that thing, it's got to be placed in something else, right? And so these folks just go, we know we're supposed to worship something. Moses is gone. We're going to worship a gold cow, right? And uh, verse 6, watch this. So the next day, the people rose early. They got up early for this, guys. Like They got up early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. They are sacrificing things. Like they're literally giving up things and saying, hey, gold cow, you're more valuable than my things. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. See this? So they worship, and all of a sudden, they, what that is, this is really important. This is what we, a lot of us do at church a lot of times, right? We kind of see church as um, empty in our sin bucket, right? So all week you carry this really big bucket, and you're, you're acquiring a lot of junk in that bucket, right? Stuff that you hope no one ever sees or knows about. And so what kind of happens is we kind of drag that bucket into Sundays. We sing a couple songs, pray a couple prayers. We dump that sin bucket in the church. We're like, oh, that feels so good. And we have all this relief. And then we take out our empty bucket, and we go and fill it up again, right? And then we do the same thing week after week where we dump our sin bucket, and, oh, we feel so much better, right? Because there's something that we go, okay, we got to appease the gods, and if we do certain things, if we behave certain ways, if we pray certain prayers, then God will be happy with us. So these guys, they come up with a fake God, and they repent to it and make sacrifices to it, and all of a sudden, they feel freedom. And see what they get to do here? They get to eat, drink, and be merry, which is why we want them to be successful. So we can finally relax. So we can finally escape. So we can finally, like, maybe it's a smaller you know, setting for us. Maybe it's just get the kids down so we have one minute of quiet, right? Or, you know, get to that vacation, whatever it is. And so these folks, they, they have that dream just like all of us, right? This, they want to eat, drink, and be merry. So they make this sacrifice. They empty their sin bucket to this false God. Like somehow they believe that's helping something. And they finally have some false relief. So... What they do is they create an idol, they worship the idol, and, the, and let the idol make them feel better. No. We can look at it and go, that doesn't make any sense because it's a gold cow. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That gold cow can't fight for them. That gold cow can't save them. That gold cow can't forgive them. That gold cow cannot fulfill them, right? So we can look at it and say those things. And so that's just what idolatry does for us, right? It just tells us that there is something out there. If we get that thing, that thing is finally going to be the thing that's going to relieve us of all the other things. Right? It's going to be the thing that finally makes our life feel like it has meaning. That's the success thing. If we, if we achieve, we acquire. There's something out there. If we get it, it's the marriage. Or maybe it's the, the new marriage. Or maybe it's the new body. Or maybe it's the new house. Whatever it is. There's just something out there. And so, in our culture, we don't worship gold cows. We worship green birds. Oh. No? Okay. 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 Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm, I'm, I'm. So, let me... Um, Oh, that was uncomfortable, guys. That was really uncomfortable. Um, I said go birds last week, and then you got upset with me for saying it. You know? Okay, fine. I don't know what, I don't know what to do for you here. But, um, so Tim, Tim Keller kind of points out, he's a great uh, pastor, writer, and he wrote a really great book on this called Counterfeit Gods and uh, describes idolatry as this. Let me read it to you. Um, An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, in your deepest Meaning, some of us don't even dive that far down to do this, right? Um, in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. And idols, whenever you look at it and say, in your heart, if I have that, 
then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. Now, the problem is, is whatever that thing is, it's not going to fulfill you. Whatever that thing is, not going to sustain you. And whatever that thing is, when you fail it, it is not capable of forgiving you. It is not capable of making you right before God. So this is a very dangerous thing. And I would just argue this is probably, for us, probably the, the chief issue that we face as a church. So uh, to Christians in this church, we all struggle with idolatry. And what's the problem with this is, is most of the things that we idolize are really good things, like marriage and kids, right? But when they become the thing, the preeminent thing, the most valuable thing, right? The thing above all things, then they will destroy you and devastate you because at some point they will fail you. At some point, your spouse will die or you will die. At some point, your kids will grow up. At some point, that job will no longer be there. It's possible that the stock market could crash, right? Now, I'm not trying to do fear-mongering here, but to put all of our hope in those things, Moses is going, and God would be like, hey, that's going to disappoint you at some point. So it makes sense that we identify what these idols are in our life. And so um, Tim Keller offers some really good questions. I'm just going to read them to you. They'll be up here. Not going to spend much time here. Literally about 30 seconds on each of them. Um, maybe it'll help you identify some of these things. This isn't the, the, um, to take a jab at you or make you feel shame. But it is one of the things that I'd go, whatever these things are, it won't fulfill you. And so it makes sense that we go and clean that stuff up. So here'd be the first one. Um, uh, here's a way, just kind of thinking about what, your, what our idols are. The first one is, what consumes most of your thoughts and feelings? What consumes it? Like, what are you thinking about most of the time? What is it there? The uh, second one is, what motivates you to do things? This one's really interesting. Typically, fear motivates us a lot of time. Fear of what or who? Right? So whatever that thing is that motivates you, why does it motivate you? Third one is, is uh, another good one here. What are you most afraid of? Right? Some of us, uh, one of our big idols is just comfort, right? And so we fear pain. We feel discomfort. We fear death, right? Some of us fear public speaking. Like we fear uh, people looking at us or having a, uh, making a, uh, a false accusation about us, right? Because maybe, maybe our idols, our reputation. Um, here's another one. What brings you the most frustration or anger? This is for me when I start looking through these where I realize that my kids, my family, they kind of pop up on this idol list for me a little bit. Um, what is the one thing that can change your mood in a second? Right? Maybe it's a bad driver. Right? Why does that make you so mad? Maybe it's because you idolize efficiency, speed, getting somewhere fast. Maybe it's because you want to achieve more in that day and that person going slow in front of you is going to slow down your ability to achieve those things, right? So what is it that uh, can change your mood in a second? What would your friend say is your favorite topic of conversation? Right? What is it? What is the thing that you always talk about? This is again where I'm going, man, my kids are creeping up there for me, right? But can you imagine the pressure for my kids if they have to be the thing that I worship? Can you imagine how well they have to perform? How well they have to do? How they have to, what they have to score on their test if I'm worshiping them and their success. Can you imagine the pressure of that, right? Um, here's another one. Uh, what are some things that you feel you can't live without? What are they? Uh, eight, what brings you comfort? Uh, Tim Keller said what uh, brings solace to you. I didn't know that word. I looked it up. I thought, oh, we'll use comfort. Uh, what brings comfort to you? What brings comfort to you? Another one is what do you yearn for? Like when you dream about the things that you dream about, what is it? Is it the beach house and your retirement? Is it collecting seashells? Is it not having to work? I mean, so what is it you yearn for? And then finally, this one's really important. What is the one thing you wish God would do for you? You see, this really brings up kind of God not being the thing, God being the one who gives you the things that you want. So what is it that you ask God and beg God for the most often? And if it's an idol, why would God give you that answer? Because it just would sustain the worship of this false stuff, right? So some things to think about. So we find these Israelites, they're in the middle of idolatry. And so we're going to see what God does with them. And it, it's pretty harsh. Um, verse 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. So they're up there 40 days, right? And God goes, you got to get down there. you got to get back to the house. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it. And I've said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone 
so that my anger may burn against them and that I might destroy them. So God is, God's fed up with this. Go on. They literally are given this gold cow credit, right? Which is one of the reasons that we have to weep at the idea of false gods or false religions because all that worship, all that esteem, all should go to God, right? And so you get this piece of God is the only one who deserves those things, and we should be grieved that God doesn't get the credit for it, right? But then it, there's another piece of that. Then he says, then I will make you into a great nation. So we see something here that's really important. He's going, something's got to happen here because we have, a, we have a mission, and the mission is a great nation. A mission is my kingdom of heaven to invade earth. The mission is my kingdom, and here's what's kind of going on. He's going, and those people are in opposition to it which is really important because here's kind of what I would say is the big idea, maybe worth writing down, maybe worth taking a picture of. It's this. Um, there are two types of people in the world, right? I, I told you last week, uh, there's two different positions. Either we're holding our hands in defiance to God or we're holding it in praise. Well, kind of to elaborate on that, there's two types of people. People that participate and point to God's kingdom are people that stand in opposition to it. Now, that's very reductionistic, and you go, no, there's a third category. No, there's not. Like, I'm not trying to be mean here, act like I'm smart, and you have to spend a lot of time on this. There is not a third category either. Either we recognize that the God of the universe, the creator God, is the, the source of all good and the source of all salvation, and that's it, and it's just his kingdom. Or we don't. And when we don't, we're going, we don't care about your kingdom, God, either because we don't believe it's real or we believe our kingdom's better than yours, right? And so idolatry invites us to stand in opposition. Literally, these guys are giving credit for their joy and their uh, fulfillment and their salvation to a gold cow. You're giving credit for your peace and your joy to a person who can't actually supply that for you, right? So there's two different kind of categories. Either you're standing in God's kingdom and pointing to God's kingdom and living in it, or you're standing in opposition to it. So God says we're going to destroy them because we got the kingdom work to do. Now watch this, verse 11. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out? To kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Turn your, from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as number, numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give you descendants. I, I will give your descendants all this land I promised, and it will be their inheritance forever. So Moses goes, hey God, you got a covenant here, right? You got, and then it says this, and the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. Lots to think about there. Don't have a lot of time to cover it. want to kind of highlight something to you. Um, one of the things we're working on here, if you don't know, we, we cover a lot of ground every single week. And we talk, I talk fast, and I mean, we're, we're moving. Like, I mean, it, it, there's a lot to cover. And um, some of this stuff's really neat because I really love to talk about, okay, can you change God's mind? Did he really relent? Did, did Moses, like, did he persuade God? Was, how, how exactly did that work? And we don't have time to cover all that stuff. Um, but one of the things we are working on and will happen in kind of the middle of October is— um, on your bulletin, uh, you'll actually be able to write any questions you have, okay? So you've got something to come up in the sermon. You go, oh, I'd like to understand a little more of that. Or um, on the back of the bulletin, you'll have a number you can text. And what will happen is um, we'll collect all that on uh, Saturday night and Sunday, uh, both Sunday morning services. And then on Monday at noon, or maybe 11, I don't, uh, and we'll go up, we have a studio upstairs, and we're working on some stuff. And we'll do a Facebook Live and a video podcast and an audio podcast. And we'll just wrestle. I'll, I'll work through that next hour of questions with you guys, right? Because there's a lot of stuff that doesn't make the cut. I wish it could. I would, I would talk to you for four hours if you'd let me, right? And so... Um, so that will happen uh, kind of middle of October because a lot of you have commutes and uh, we're creating some more um, resources. Pastor Gary and I are working through some other things as it relates to Bible study through podcasts. Uh, uh, Megan and Carrie are working on some stuff for women. So we're going to start rolling out and offering these things. So this would be a really good time to go, okay, what exactly happened here with Moses and God? Don't have time to talk about it now, but once you know that's coming in the next couple of weeks. And, but what we do see here is God actually uh, pauses. He doesn't destroy them. And here's what happens next. Uh, verse 15, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. So he's carrying all these words, right? They haven't seen them yet, but he's carrying them, right? Um, they were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, right? This is better than an autograph, right? This is amazing stuff. Um, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, it is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. Ugh, they probably are dancing too, right? Um, 
Uh, verse 19. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. That's so funny. You know how like um, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them in pieces at the foot of the mountain. He literally just destroy, destroyed this God's writing, right? This is messed up. And so it's, I, I experienced this some with our kids. You know, I don't know if you have kids and they ever make you angry. Um, but usually what happens, this is really neat, this is God's grace to us, one of the two parents is usually really angry about it, and the other one has to play the calm, cool thing, right? So, hey, no, it's not a big deal. And one of them just like, I'm gonna, you know, like this, they rip their hair out, right? And then, then something happens. It all, maybe not for you, but it happens to us. Like, the kid will say one little smart thing, right? And all of a sudden, it's like it changes. Then the calm one's like goes crazy, and the, then the one who was going crazy is like, oh, I better, get, I better keep it together here, right? So this is kind of what happens. God is so angry, and Moses is like, no, no, God, it's okay. And then Moses gets down there, and he is just irate. And he literally busts these things. Like, this is like a WWF thing, right? And so he's throwing it down. He's angry. Watch what happens. Watch his response. This is so crazy, guys. Um, <laughs> uh, and he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Oh my gosh. Then he ground it to powder, scouter, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. Drink it. You drink it. Drink it. Drink it. This is actually where Goldschlager comes from, if you're familiar with that. Wow, this is a good crowd right here. I thought all that laughter would come from the non-Christian section up, up top, but no, no, that's really neat, right? And so literally he grinds up the gold and he makes them drink it. You know, like when you make that smoothie your kid doesn't like, you're like, you, you take every sip of it or they have to do the medicine. Drink it, drink it, drink it. Don't spit it out, drink it. He makes them drink this. You're like, that's, is that just anger? Probably. But there is something to think about here. This is my own opinion. I mean, I think it probably is worthwhile for them to understand that they weren't, inviting a God into their life, like that false God they were worshiping when they consumed it. Didn't make them feel better, right? It probably made them sick. Like, so there's something about this to go, this thing cannot satisfy, if anything, it is the opposite of fulfillment and satisfaction. Um, so then it continues. He said to Aaron, what did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my Lord, that's lowercase l, that means ball, CEO, right? Um, Answer, um, Aaron answers that he's not seeing him as God or he's just seeing him as the, the one in charge. You know how prone these people are to yell. Aaron's like, I couldn't help it. You know how these people are. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for the fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. So he's going, you know they're going to do something bad. So I thought I'd just give them some focused attention on worshiping a gold cow. Right? So I told them how it happened. Take it off. Then they gave me the gold. Watch this. And I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. <laughs> He's like, I don't know. I had this gold up there in the fire. You know, patty cake, patty cake. Baker's man, roll it up. And all of a sudden, a cow, right? Like he literally is saying, I didn't do it. So funny what we do when we're uh, caught in a mess. Verse 25, Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control. And he so became a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance of the camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. So that's some funny stuff. Um, but you're going to see some real serious um, issues with idolatry. And all the Levites rallied to him. So this is the priestly. So the Levites are one of the 12 sons of Jacob, Levi. And through their, kind of their offspring, that lineage, that becomes kind of like the first pastors of the Israelites, the shepherds in that deal. And so he says this. He says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. Remember? There's two, there's two camps. There is God's kingdom. Either you're in it or you're in opposition to it. Now watch this. Moses is very gracious, and he invites every single one of them into it right? He doesn't say, he doesn't exclude anybody. He says, okay, we finally got to make a decision. Do you want to worship false idols? Do you want to stand in opposition to God? You want to work in your own kingdom, which isn't a real kingdom, or do you want to be in God's kingdom? So he literally invites the entire nation to choose a side. And I would just offer, perhaps we got to make the same decision. Like, do we really want to think that that thing out there is going to be the thing that's going to fulfill us? Because idolatry just leads at some point to death. Idolatry is why affairs happen, right? Idolatry is why people embezzle money. Idolatry is why people become greedy and therefore alone. Idolatry is why people have to have control. Idolatry creates anger. So in this moment, Moses is going, do you want to worship idols or do you want to be in God's kingdom? And one-twelfth of the people, the Levites, go, oh, we're interested in God's kingdom. So watch this. Then he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each man strap a sword to a side, go back and forth to the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. So God is going, this, there's death is lurking for those of us who stand in opposition to God's kingdom. 
right? And so a lot we can talk about in terms of God can play the tape through, understand that they were doing do nothing but destroy their own lives and destroy people. And so God and his graciousness could be putting them out of their misery, right? There's some stuff to talk about there. don't have time in that. But what we do want, want you to see here is there are grave, grave consequences to idolatry. There are grave consequences to sin and sin and idolatry does ruin families, ruin careers, right? And so you see this and you see the harsh reality of it and to the point where it literally says they had to, they destroyed their own family, meaning even family couldn't be an idol in this deal. The Levites did as Moses commanded and that day about 3,000 people died. 3,000 people died. Then Moses said, you have been set apart to the Lord today for you were against your own sons and brothers and he has blessed you this day. So you are in my kingdom. You are for my kingdom. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you've committed a great sin, but now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now please forgive their sin. So Moses, remember, um, he's going to go and talk to God on behalf of his people, like an intercede there, right? And so as we've been noticing throughout the, the, the Old Testament scriptures, particularly in Genesis and Exodus, there's always someone in every one of the stories that points to kind of the archetype of, of who Jesus is, like points to this Jesus who, who will come and one day do it. So you see throughout the Old Testament scriptures, this band-aid covering, right? This, and that word atonement here, this band-aid covering where, that, where they're covered for their bad decisions and that God still loves them. And there's this covering, usually with a sacrifice, usually with shed blood, but it's a temporary solution because there's a permanent problem, right? And so the whole point of the Ten Commandments is to convince us we have a permanent problem and that someone has to save us. And the only one who can save us is the God of the universe. And so and what you're going to see here, watch what, watch what Moses says here. But, uh, but now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you've written. So he's going, no, no, no. God, I'll take the punishment. I'll take the pain. I'll do it. So this is representative of one person standing up on behalf of people to, and not on their behavior to receive the consequences that everybody deserves. But the problem with that is Moses can't save them, right? Like if a car drives by and you're about to get hit and I jump out and I dive and I push you out of the way and I get hit and I die, that'd make me a really nice person. You talk really nice and you go, wow, he's so good. That's great. I, I gave you a few more years to live, right? Maybe five, maybe 10, maybe 50, but that's it. You'll still die. And there'll still be consequences for your life, right? I can't, I can't fix that for you. I can't save you. Moses can't either. So what we see here is Moses giving us a picture of what's to come, right? Remember, the MRI, these laws. So Moses is going to have to go back up to the mountain. God's going to have to rewrite the tablets. He's going to spend 40 more days up there, and he's going to bring it back down. And now they're going to be able to lay this stuff over their heart. And hopefully, for most of them, they'll go, yep, we can't follow all that. Yep, we need to see the specialist. We need a Savior. And from that point forward, everybody's going to be talking about the Savior. Now, hundreds, thousands of years later, that Savior shows up. And at the end of his life, at the beginning, people are saying, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He's going, the kingdom is really, really close. And then at the end, he gives us a picture in the craziest way of how we get to live in the kingdom. And it's nothing like you would think. It's not about like burning your CDs and, you know, doing all these big, elaborate, uh, you know, uh, penances or whatever. Like it's none of that. I want you to see how it happens. So Jesus, as the, the specialist, as the one who really can cover for sins, is actually being crucified. So he's getting beat up and he's on a cross. And now flanking him on either side are two people who actually deserve to die. Two criminals and Jesus. Just want to read the story to you as we wrap up. I have Luke 23, verse 32. So this is New Testament. This is talking about Jesus as the specialist. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, watch this. So you got these two people, got all these people out there. They're all watching. Jesus is naked. He's just been beat down, like, to, like almost to, to lose his life. Right now he's up on a cross, and, he, and these people are spitting on him. They pulled up their lawn chairs. I mean, this is a, a horrific scene. And watch what Jesus says in that moment. Same way Moses said to God on behalf of the Israelites. Watch what he says. Father, oh, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. Would you forgive them? Like, they don't know they're chasing after idols. So God is doing all the work. Jesus is going, God, would you forgive them? Like, so when you go through that list of 10 things, you go, oh, man, I got some mess in my life. Jesus' response to that is, hey, God, would you forgive them? They didn't know. They were unaware. They didn't know those things. They thought that's how life was supposed to work. They thought those things would fulfill them. They didn't know. God, would you forgive them? And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Verse 35, the people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. So they are literally mocking this dude, like in straight defiance, in absolute opposition to God's kingdom. The soldiers also came and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar, 
and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Boy, there's a lot to talk about there. I wish I could spend more time. Um, and uh, typical um, customary outhouse situations where uh, public gatherings, people would use bathrooms and holes, and they didn't have toilet paper. Uh, so like in Africa now, one of the things they use is corn cobs. It's crazy. But back in the day, they would use sponges, like legitimate sponges from the Mediterranean Sea, wherever. And so there'd be sponges on sticks that would just be dipped in vinegar, right? And so don't know this for sure, but when we see this moment where they stick a sponge up to Jesus' face, it's a real possibility. That was the same sponges they were using in the outhouse, right? I mean, this is horrific what we're seeing here in terms of these people. And Jesus' response Hey, Dad, would you forgive them? They're so angry, but they don't know what they're doing, right? And so uh, there, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. So one of the guys says, Are you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. On the other side, it says this. But the other criminal rebuked him. He goes, Don't you fear God? He said, Since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly. So literally, some awareness. We deserve this. Like, how in the world would you talk to him about? He did nothing wrong, right? We deserve this. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. He's applied the law to his heart, right? And he goes, I deserve this. I am, this is what I deserve for my behavior, right? But he did nothing wrong. And watch, how, watch his positioning. Then he said, he looks over at Jesus. Real scene. This is a true story. These are real people. Real people sitting next to Jesus. And he says, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? See that word there, kingdom. He acknowledges that he has made a wreck of his life. He acknowledges that he deserves his punishment. He is a sinner. And he is getting what he deserves, right? He's applied the law to his heart. And what he has realized is he deserves that. And then in this moment, he just looks up and says, will you remember me when, we come in, when, when you come into your kingdom? See what he's saying there? Jesus, I know it's your kingdom. I know it's all your kingdom. I know there's only two positions. Either I stand in opposition to your kingdom or I live in it and point to it every day. Those are the only two options. Jesus, would you remember me in your kingdom? Watch this. Jesus answered him. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. So this is so messed up. He doesn't pray the sinner's prayer. He doesn't come down front for an invitation. He doesn't get baptized. All he does is he acknowledges he, he was getting what he deserved. And then he looks and says, but Jesus, you are God and you have a kingdom and I, it's your kingdom and it's only your kingdom, right? And in that moment, the only transition, he doesn't get better. He didn't, do, he didn't pay everybody back, didn't do any restitution. He dies. He dies. That's all that happens for him in this world, right? He dies. But what Jesus says, in that moment, he gets invited and ushered into God's kingdom for all eternity. Listen to me. We will hang out with that dude one day. Like, this is a true guy in history who went from the worst of sinners to the point where he deserved death to this one very specific moment where he goes, I don't want to idolize anything else. Jesus is your kingdom. And in that moment, he gets invited in. So, for those of us that's going, hey, we got to figure out how to live into this kingdom. Because there is no other God other than God. He gets all the glory. He gets all the worship. We've got to live into this kingdom. So the bands will come up and they're going to lead us into this song to talk about there is no other God like our God. So we get to live into this kingdom or you get to stand in opposition to it. And the, the grave fear for me in that is it will not end well. It will not end well. But the good news is you can keep turning over stones, keep turning over rocks, and the God of the universe is still looking at you and saying, hey, Father, would, would you forgive them? They don't know what they're doing. So here's the good news. There is nothing you've ever done or nothing you could ever do to separate you from that God who invites you into the kingdom. Whatever that is. Because it's not about your behavior. It's not about anything that you can do to earn God's favor. It's just acknowledging that it's his kingdom. It's his kingdom. And so would you stand with me and I'm going to pray and we're going to sing. Well, Jesus, I love at the end of the uh, Lord's Prayer, somewhere throughout history, folks decided to add that piece of... Um, for yours is the kingdom, and yours is the glory forever. And so God, I just think it'd be neat for a lot of us trying to figure out how to live in this kingdom, um, to kind of participate in it collectively. And so God, before we sing the song, it's been really neat for us collectively to just kind of pray to you. So if you know these words, would you join me in saying them? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread as we forgive those who trespass against us.
For yours is the kingdom and the power and glory forever. Amen. Man, it sounds so exclusive and so arrogant to say there is no other God who can save. But there is no other God who can save. When Jesus says it in John chapter 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but through me. It sounds so exclusive, but it's not exclusive, it's specific. He's just going, I'm just the only way. Like, you don't have to do any work. No, you don't have to do, you can't do it. There's only one God who saves. And boy, I'd love for us to get that. I'd love for our families to understand that. I'd love for our neighbors to know that. I'd love for our coworkers to get this. There's no other God who can save. And that's really great news. 
if people can discover this God who does all the work and get invited into that. And so that's the effort for this fall. We're going, how do we create more space and more opportunities for more people to find out that there really is a God of the universe who is madly in love with us, right? Who, who proves that in his son and what he does for us and gives us freedom and gives us hope and allows us to live in his kingdom now. And so I want that for you. I want that for our community. And so one of the things we're trying to figure out is how do we help people know? And some things you'll see out in the lobby is we have yard signs helping people know that we have a Saturday and Sunday uh, morning service. would love, love, love for you to grab one of those. They're free and put them in your yard, right, for two reasons. One, want your neighbors to know. Two, I think it'll be just really neat for us to understand that it's a pretty large community of folks that we're working on this together. And you got, uh, we got some stickers that you can put on the back of your car. That's nice. That'll help you if you're in uh, traffic and you see someone else and you're grumpy. You're like, ah, oh, there's some other people doing this kingdom work with me. And um, some of you, you, you have the, the, an idol of uh, your car and you don't, you don't put stickers on it because you don't want to make messy. That's fine. You can deal with your idolatry. We did get magnets for, for, for you types, right? Um, but they, they're expensive. So if you want the magnet, that's fine. They're just, just, they cost us two bucks. So if you don't mind covering that, that'd be good. So yard signs, stickers, magnets. Love, love, love for you to use those things. And then there's t-shirts out there. Uh, one that you can wear that kind of talk about the kind of environment we want. Everybody's welcome. Everybody's perfect. Anything's possible. And the mission. Make it simple. Feel to connect to Jesus and one another. And so there's a couple different options. There's like different styles for women and men. There's kids ones. They're all out there. And just be candid with you. They cost us about five fifty each. Wouldn't mind if you uh, don't mind covering some of that cost. So if you want to throw a $5 bill in when you get it, that's fine. If you don't have any cash, you can uh, do it mobilely through, or mobile through Pushpay. Or if you just can't afford it, that's fine. Just grab a shirt. No, one, no one's watching or keeping up with that. Because what's going to happen is someone's going to throw a 20 in there, and they're not going to want their change. And so it's, it's going to all work itself out. So T-shirts are out there, stickers, bumper stickers, signs. So it's us inviting people. And then um, this upcoming Saturday, so six days, where it was our first Lincoln University game zone. And so in that, we, we kind of do inflatables and have kind of a fun tailgating experience out at Lincoln University before their football games. And so I'd love for you to help uh, volunteer and be a part of that. You can sign up out there. Ben would love to tell you about it. And wear the shirts. And one of the other things we have is there's some invite cards. They t- tell about the church sign. And the other side, it's kind of a place that's blank. So you can write your phone number on it, write a message, whatever that is. And then the following Friday would be first Friday in Oxford, um, where we're going to take the big yellow mug, uh, uh, hand out hot cider and lemonade. And uh, hopefully about 100, 200 of us would be willing to wear shirts and just invite people to the very next night, which will be the first Saturday night services. So that's it. Thanks for listening to all that. You got some stuff going in your life and you're looking uh, for some connection. And I want to pray with someone as people are heading that way. Got some people down here on the right who love, love to pray for you. But that's it. You guys have a great rest of your week and see you on Wednesday.